All right, well, introductions. My name's Tom. I am one of the owners here at Burning Brothers, and uh, my partner in crime today is Dominic. Because, Hi, guys. I'm uh, Dominic. I'm the sales manager at Burning Brothers. Yeah, unfortunately, the other brother, Dane, is uh, on vacation, so you will have to go ahead and put up with just the two of us instead. So. That'll have to do. Yeah. This week, we're continuing our Minnesota tour. This is Burning Brothers, a gluten-free brewery. Today, I'm joined by Tom and Dominic, and they talk about what it takes to make gluten-free beer. I'm the Cycling Certified Cicerone, and this is Washington Beer Talk. What, what's with the Burning Brothers? What's, what's with the name? Burning Brothers? Not Burning Man, we get that reference a lot and stuff like that. Uh, no, it's, you know, every brewery's got to have some sort of backstory. Um, we chose to go ahead and go with our own actual background, which is uh, Dane and I, 20 years ago, uh, started fire eating professionally. As in, yes, stick flaming torches in your mouth, blow fireballs, etc., like that. So, and uh, you know, fire eating is not exactly a healthy lifetime activity. So uh, we decided to go ahead and, after doing that for a while, switch it up to uh, making beer. So, um, okay, well, there's two steps there. What happened? At wh- when did the fire breathing become a thing? So obviously, you quit. You started doing that professionally. Was that just side hustle? Was that your full-blown deal? Uh, for me, it was a side hustle. Dane actually uh, went on the road with it for a while and was doing it, you know, quasi-professionally. So, um, yeah, it, how I got into it was, it was literally, you know, you're young, you're 20, and someone says to you, hey, do you want to learn how to eat fire? You go ahead and say, uh, sure, why not? You know, because I had nothing else to do that day, so. <laughs> so... Um, so in your capacity as a fire eater, what all did you do? What were some of your tricks? Where'd you go? Red fairs? Mostly renaissance festivals. You know, we did some special events here and there. We did uh, one where I actually did a uh, grand entrance for this fraternity slash sorority contest where we basically did a fire ritual out in front of a sorority. And I, the guy actually won, you know, so despite some other guy getting delivered in an ambulance, I mean, there's all sorts of weird stuff, so... <laughs> But as far as tricks go, I mean, you know, fire eating, when you really get down to it, it's it's pretty straightforward, you know. Once you stick a torch in your mouth, you stick two torches in your mouth, you light things using your fingers and stuff like that. I mean, mostly it ends up being a lot of talk and pratter because the actual tricks that you can do, there's just, once you've done it, you kind of, <laughs> you got to stretch it out, you know. <laughs> so. Okay, okay. So... You know, you're taking a sip of kerosene, you blast that out, make a big old fire breath. Um, Cannot confirm or deny that we use kerosene. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, And that that must have uh, impacted your taste buds in some way, so clearly you brew with kerosene, right? (laughs) No, no kerosene. Although, my wife is happy that I've given up the whole fire eating thing, because she's like, yeah, I really liked it when you came home and I got to kiss a gasoline pump. Because that's pretty much what you smell like. So. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Right on. So you did that for 20 years. Ish. Yeah. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, during that time, we were also homebrewing. Um, Dane and I actually ended up, you know, we were homebrewing kind of separately. We didn't even realize we were both into it. And then uh, kind of let it slip one day what we were each doing and ended up actually getting together, starting to make beer more often. And then that, of course, leads to part two of our big revelation, of course, which is uh, 
you know, we were brewing for a couple of years, having a good time with it, started that conversation that many home brewers do of what about going pro? And we actually started into the business planning process and then wham, bam, Dean got diagnosed with celiac disease. Oof. And that's where part three comes in. Yep. So. The second aspect of your thing, the gluten-free bit. So he'd been brewing it. He'd been drinking and brewing his own beer. Oh, yeah. And then presumably for a while that was fine. And then one day it sucked. And then then he realized what was happening. Then well, I mean, you know, the way he described it was his doctor's like, he, you know, he, he ended up with a new doctor for whatever reason. And the new doctor's like, hey, I think I've got an idea why you've been feeling like hell these past few years. And tested him for celiac disease, and lo and behold, that was what, you know, the diagnosis was. Wow. So, yeah, really sucked. Took him about a year to kind of come to grips with it personally, because you can imagine it's huge to try and figure out, you know, how to adjust your life and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we got back together and said, so about this brewery, and, you know, yeah, there is no way we're going to go ahead and open what we refer to now as a traditional brewery. Mm-hmm. And... uh we started to explore the idea of doing gluten-free. Uh, we did our own R&D on recipe development and stuff like that. It took us about three years. And after that three years, we began to kind of see the patterns that were happening and stuff like that. Dane, if he were here, he'd tell you his other background of the way he put you know food on the table was he was a professional chef. Mm. So he actually started taking all these gluten-free grains and ripping them apart flavor by flavor, basically, and saying a little of this, a little of that. Lo and behold, I can make gluten-free beer that doesn't suck. So, so he's so he's also a chef, which is kind of a funny like being a brewer and a chef, and then getting hit with celiacs is sort of a fun like. It's not really an fu because you're basically in a in a perfect position to mm-hmm. say, I am now I'm I'm perfectly equipped. No one is better equipped than I am to smoothly transition. You know, he's got to do the most work. He's got to do more work than anyone because instead of just Googling gluten-free places, he decides, hey, I can do I can do this. I can fix this, you know, my own way. Yep. Um, so here we are. We got these gluten-free beers. We're doing gluten-free recipes. Um, I've talked to another gluten-free brewery before. Um, Ghost, Ghost Fish. Ghost Fish yeah. in Seattle. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so you're familiar with them. Oh, I know all the gluten-free brewers. Oh, of course. Okay. Uh, there's only a handful of us in the U.S., so. Yeah, that's true. And... Um, then I and I bet you I bet you they know all about you guys out here. Oh, probably. Um, have you communicated with them at all? Do you guys share recipes or anything like that? Uh, you know, like, we, seems like we, something that you guys would benefit from. Yeah, we do chat occasionally. It's you know, it's probably not as collaborative as you know the breweries that are around us locally. You know, we've got a lot more you know relationships here in the Twin Cities than we do necessarily with the uh, the larger gluten free brewing audience. But you know, it's definitely you know like. Uh, one of the brewers from Groundbreaker when, over in Portland was in town and stopped in. And, you know, we chatted. We shared beer, you know, sent some back with him. He brought some to us, you know, that type of thing. So, absolutely, you know, there's there's camaraderie there, but I don't think we talk as often as maybe we'd all like to. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, You're geographically. Geographic makes not, it hard. Yeah. yeah. So Shipping beer across the state or across the country is not fun. No. Or cheap, no. Um, which is why you basically probably find your beer mostly in this state, right? Mostly in this state, that is <laughs> uh, true. So, and that's we'll bring it back around. That sounds like your wheelhouse. That is um, his, that is what he's here for. So, so you're the you're the sales guy, and I want to keep on talking about how about brewing gluten free beer and all that sure. kind of and all that kind of stuff. But for your sake, since you're sitting here, I don't want you to get bored and walk away. 
Um, let's talk about what it's like selling gluten-free beer. I know in Seattle, that's a West Coast thing. Gluten-free, apart from celiac disease, basically got popularized by Silicon Valley nutjobs who, like, maybe I'm getting a little opinionated here. Silicon Valley nutjobs who hate gluten and think it's going to kill you. And then there's separate from that are the celiacs who are getting killed by it. Um, so West Coast has its own share of people who want to do gluten-free without beer and or without being really gluten-free there was a market there for people who wanted gluten-free stuff did you find there was like are you as the sales guy for gluten-free beer are you explaining what celiac is and what the difference is you know or you know you find yourself explaining it but the farther along we go the less people ask about it i Mm -hmm. think um you know even when i started versus versus now uh, there's been, I don't want to say a paradigm shift, but there's been an attitude change about it. Uh, you know, it's to the point where everybody has someone in their life with, you know, celiac disease or some sort of gluten sensitivity, intolerance, you know, issues that they have. So it's become a lot more common. So you're not really having to explain that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. It's more not necessarily what celiac disease, it's, it's why gluten-free. Oh, the owner's celiac. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's definitely got that type of attitude now. Yeah. So I think the other thing that we experience a little bit here in the Midwest is celiac disease does have a prominence uh, amongst the Scandinavian population, which obviously the Nordic, you know, settlers here and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. strong Scandinavian descent. So I sometimes think that here in the Midwest, we perhaps, you know, take it a little bit more seriously than the West Coast people might mm-hmm. because I think, like Dominic was saying, everybody knows somebody who's got some sort of gluten issue of some sort, and it's not usually a choice. It's a they have to mm-hmm. type of thing. So, Yeah. Um, isn't it an advantage for you, selling beer that's gluten-free? It depends. You obviously have a built-in uh, audience and market that you can easily get at. Um, especially with not having a ton of options out there. Um, but I actually haven't been focusing on, per se, goading after the celiacs. You know, it's kind of, we've been around long enough where if people know our product, they're going to find it. Um, we've really started looking at it more from a craft beer for everyone type of aspect. You know, it's one of those things where you're not going to like every beer, no matter where you go. But we, if we can truly brew a beer that anyone can drink, you know, it's a craft beer for everyone. And like I always say, is, you know, when you have that friend that's celiac and you're sitting around with your buddies drinking beer, not having one with your friends really sucks. So we can get it in their hands, you know. But we make good beer. We make, whether it's gluten-free or not. So, you know, our clientele here is, I mean, the, the population that need to drink the beer is pretty small compared to the population that just want to try a new beer. Or we're the local neighborhood brewery for a lot of our customers. You mm-hmm. know? So it's a little bit of of all aspects of it but we're trying not to push the gluten-free aspect as much as we have in the past because we feel we've established ourselves now if we just get it in the hands of everybody else that'd be the way to do it yeah one of the things i've heard i heard talking to ghostfish was that you actually sort of get a little bit judged for being gluten-free right people go look at you and say oh Yep. I'd prefer to have gluten if I had the opportunity. You know, why would I bother with gluten-free? So maybe that's why you sell it for a bit and say, hey, I, I, we've got this gluten-free beer. Make sure that everyone who needs it knows. And once they do, you can kind of, you know, pump the brakes on a little bit, ease up, let 
other people come in and not necessarily notice that it's gluten free. Yeah. I mean, of course, you got it right on right on the door that you only have you know you have gluten free. This is a gluten free establishment. It says it right on the door, um, but I think you wouldn't notice that if you didn't need to. You know, is that something you think about? Like trying to you don't necessarily conceal the fact that no, you're gluten-free. this is an ongoing joke between Dominic and I. People don't read signs. <laughs> yeah, that, they do not. No, so yeah. It, but that being said, of course, we still put the signs up because yes, there are some people who do. But the more cynical part of me says people don't read signs. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. We we get a few people a day. I, wow, this beer's all gluten free. I had no idea you guys were a gluten free brewery. Yeah, you know, so people just oh, it's a brewery. Let's go there and check it out because I've never been there before. Yeah. yeah, so it's very nice that way. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that, you know, I'll save this question for later. I was going to ask, like, when breweries find their niche and stuff, and they're trying to figure out, you know, gluten-free, whatever. You guys have Burning Bros. That's kind of your theme. Breweries have a niche. They have a theme. They brew certain types of beer. They have their thing. You're talking to uh, Tin Whiskers, you know, they're electrical engineering themed, and yeah. they have, you know, certain types of beers that they brew. And usually, it's kind of the tandem aspects of the theme and, and niche. Um, you have your niche for sure. Your theme is Burning Bros. Okay, I guess I'm asking this question now. Um, you uh, so how do those come together? Is there any way? Do you do anything to tie together the fact that like Burning Bros is the like you know this fire breathing devil thing? You got obviously you got you know you got your cloven feet dudes on your thing, and then how does that come? How does that gluten free? You can't impart that imagery in some way, can you? No, nah, I mean I think you know Burning Brothers is our history, and it's just part of you know what made us into where we're at today and the gluten-free aspect is just you know a story that goes with it and is not necessarily a focus in the branding and stuff like that Mm -hmm. i mean you look at a lot of the breweries out there a good one here in minneapolis is dangerous man Mm -hmm. nothing to do if you met rob the owner he is one of the nicest people you ever meet he is not this big burly intimidating guy he's actually pretty you know small and kind of slight but awesome and friendly and there's a story of course behind how they came up with the name but it's kind of you know when we were sitting there and coming up with the what do we call ourselves and stuff like that it's really you don't need to go ahead and have your name necessarily tie into your niche yeah you know people just want something that's recognizable alliteration is good burning brothers brewing you know that type of thing you know you just you know something that resonates is what it really comes down to yeah you know Unless, of course, you, know, you you could go ahead and, you know, pay a research firm to go ahead and, you know, do $100,000 worth of research on what, you know, blah, blah, blah works perfectly for you. But this is also the beer industry, you know, where we're not looking for that big corporate, you know, answer. We're looking for realism, transparency. You know, we want to see what the people are truly about, mm-hmm. you know, so. Okay. Right on. Let's talk about the beer a little bit more. So we, yeah, we. Came over to the sales side. I got to bring it right back over to beer. We're talking about recipe formulation stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of your recipes? If you want to, don't don't give away too many details. But you know, give away as much as many as you can. Obviously, people who are trying to home brewers who want to make gluten free beer, or other breweries that wish they had one. Uh, like, what are some of the hardships you overcame? Talking to other other gluten free breweries, they got there's some weird shit you don't see coming. So you know, we use primarily sorghum as mm-hmm. our base malt. Um, that being said, we also use buckwheat millet. Uh, sometimes we'll use oats, honey, molasses. So, you know, basically for us, you know, we just tried to go ahead and find alternative sugars or grains that, you know, don't contain gluten 
that allow us to go ahead and make beer. Uh, everything else is the same. We're using hops, we're using yeast, water, obviously. So it's really just the grains when you get down to it. Although that is a question we get asked a lot. Are hops gluten-free? Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, you know, uh, that being said, you know, when you go ahead and you're dealing with a gluten-free grain like sorghum, for example, sorghum is used in a lot of stuff that people probably don't realize. You know, it's often used as a sweetener in soda and stuff like that. So, um, and one of the problems you run into it is, of course, it doesn't behave the same way as barley. Mm -hmm. So when you're sitting there and trying to formulate a recipe, you've got to go ahead and work with that sweetness. And I, I, I want to specifically focus on that work with. A lot of traditional brewers, when they try and slap together a gluten-free recipe, their answer is to try and bury the sorghum flavor mm -hmm. and hops or whatever, you know. And, you know, that can work to an extent the way, you know, any brewer can go ahead and throw a bunch of hops at something. But if you're actually trying to go ahead and make something that's a little bit more palatable, you've got to go ahead and find ways that this flavor complements that flavor. And the way we did that is sometimes going ahead and taking, for example, what is traditionally an aroma hop, using it as a bittering hop, vice versa, going ahead and taking our yeast and maybe fermenting it at a slightly higher or a slightly lower temperature so that we're getting different esters off the yeast mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, so you've got to do a lot of experimentation. It really does come down to a lot of experimentation. But, I mean, realistically, all brewers are doing that to a certain extent. So, you know, we're, we're not per se doing anything different. I, I think, though, that when I go ahead, if I were to hand you one of my recipes and say, go make this, you might still be a little bit challenged to go ahead and come up with the exact same beer as the one that's sitting in front of you right now. You know? mm -hmm. What are some of the tricks in the process? You know, it, it, again, it just comes down to the, you know, managing your yeast better, going ahead and, you know, finding the balance between the sweetness of sorghum or, you know, some of the biscuitiness of millet or some of those things and saying, well, I really like, you know, for example, these Columbus hops here. Can I go ahead and use those against this grain here to go ahead and produce an overall flavor profile of what I'm looking for? And this is actually where I wish Dane was here. Mm -hmm. Since he's actually the recipe guy. Oh, yeah. I, I can certainly go ahead and talk at a very basic level, but he'd be the one to go ahead and get into some of the more specifics behind, the, behind kind of the, the hows and whys of, you know, we do the recipes. So We're talking about experimentation and how gluten-free beer, you got to really experiment. You got less of a foundation, you know, that other, less of collaboration. Can't really Google recipes to try. Uh, that's what I always tell people is, yeah, you know, the Surly up the road here, who's our, you know, big new, you know, kid on the block here. You know, they've got, they want to put out a new IPA. They go out on Google and, you know, there's 5,000 IPA recipes that they can start from. You know, we want to go make an IPA and it's like, there's three, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But there's a secret benefit in that you can't use barley you or rye or all those other things that are mm -hmm. popular. Um, you... And this is something that as a home brewer, I'm like, I, I like to experiment as well. And I've been brewing lots of like brewing beer I found is too hard for a home brewer. I think that I should leave that to professionals. Sure. So I brew lots of cider and ginger beer Yep. Um, because those are easy to brew and there's a lot of room for experimentation there still. And there is, and what's nice about that is that if you figure out something cool, like 
no one else is really making that. You can't go to a brewery in Seattle and buy the ginger beer I made. You know, that's just right. like, right. that's kind of neat. Um, that's basically the truth for your gluten-free beers. If you say, I'm going to brew a beer with millet and it turns out a thousand times better than anything everyone, anyone's ever had, you know, a beer brewed with malted barley, then like th- those breweries never would have known just think could have existed and you invented it from nothing and now you have it. Right. And you basically have this realm of knowledge you can tap into that, um, it's undiscovered like that's yeah we actually we've got some begrudging respect with the beer community here where we talk to a bunch of the brewers here and they actually say you know we don't know how you're doing it because they've tried brewing gluten-free on their big systems and stuff like that and they just can't achieve the flavor profiles that we are so you know we end up actually with a lot of referrals from a bunch of the other tap rooms where someone will come in and say you got anything that's gluten-free and they'll say Sorry, man, but you should go check out Burning Brothers because they're the shit. So that probably helps y'all out a little bit. I think uh, so. In Seattle, sorry, not to mention Seattle like four right. times. Uh, Seattle's my second favorite city. So oh, good behind this one or yeah, behind this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we uh, um, in Seattle, we're allowed to have guest beers on tap. Or sure. Guests, yeah, so you can have a cider at any brewery you go to. Say, what's your gluten free option? They say we got two. We got cider. You know, whatever. Uh, Seattle Cider Co. is always there, yep. you know, uh, Finn River, you know, lots of places out there. And those are always accessible. And then here, you come to find out you can't have guest taps. And that means they do have to point your direction. Instead of saying, here's our cider, you can drink that and be happy with it. You know, gluten-free drinkers, they, I mean, gluten-free drinkers know of ghost fish. I'll go find it. Right. Um, but, um, but in your case, you've got basically people pointing your direction, which is really beneficial. Yeah, Definitely. I guess our guest taps would be at brew pubs more so than that. I mean, if you have a food license and are serving stuff like that, you can get a different license where you can brew your own and have guest beers on tap. Yeah, there, there are a couple of brew pubs here in Minnesota that actually just basically sent F it and brought our beer in. So Yeah. So Yeah, so you get a little bit of here. I mean, I could see that changing more in the future too because stuff's changed pretty rapidly over the past few years here in Minnesota, so... Who knows what's gonna? Yeah, I mean, what's in the future? Yeah, the Minnesota beer industry is going through a lot of change right now. Yeah, I mean, five years ago they introduced the Surly Bill. That's right. And you know, for people that don't know what that is on the podcast here, basically before that, tap rooms could not sell pints. We could offer you tastes, but you couldn't come sit down in the tap room with your buddies and throw back a few. You know, it's basically you know, you come in, here's your little flight glass. Thank you very much. Get out. You know, is what we could do. So, did you guys predate this tap room or tasting room? It would have been a tasting room at the time. Did it predate this early law? And here's the funny part: is when we were going ahead and putting together the original, you know, build out. I did not plan on putting the tap room in mm-hmm. because I, I honestly said, who's going to come to a gluten free tap room? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I thought that there's no way that it would go ahead and generate enough to be worthwhile. Hmm. And uh, actually. Uh, Deb and Jill from Urban Growler kind of smacked us around a little bit and said, you guys are producing kick-ass beer. You need a tap room. Yeah. So we did. And yeah, I'm happy to say they were right and I was wrong. So tap room has been a significant portion of our revenue. So I am very happy we made the choice. But it is also at the same time when you look around at the tap room around you, it's very low key. Yeah. Because we, we didn't originally plan to have it. So... There was a little bit of a scrape and scramble to go ahead and figure out how we were going to include it, you know, yeah. at the 11th hour. So, I, um, 
I actually like your tap room a lot. Like it's because you you said it's low key, and that's that's a good description of it. You know that feeling you get when, and maybe this is something only I ever did. You ever go to like a uh, not a gym, like a gymnasium, like a gymnastics gym. Mm-hmm. And you walk in, and there's always like one little foot pad there where you get to walk in. You go to the desk, you sign in or do whatever, and then everything else, or like a rock climbing gym. And then beyond that is where all the good stuff happens. The vast majority of all the good stuff is going on behind this wall here. Yep. And then you feel like you're still in that. You're separated by this thin wall, though. And um, it, but it's got like the high gymnasium ceilings and like you know all that kind of. That's if I were to try to describe the vibe. That's well, what, yeah. We've got the big window that looks out on the tap room, and you know, yeah, that's, I, that's critical. I think. Well, I have to say that's one of my pet peeves. Is if I go into a tap room and I can't see the brewery, I'm like, then this is just a bar, is what it is to me. You know, and you know, there are several of the breweries around here who that is the way they have things laid out and. I get it. Sometimes, you know, you find the perfect space and then it doesn't work to go ahead and have taproom viewing the brewery. But I don't know. People come to a brewery to see where the beer is made. Yeah. So. I, I completely agree with that. That's one of my, like, main things. I call that the smell. If yep. a brewery's got the smell. Yep. Um, and your place does. It's got a good smell to it. It's the first thing you see when you walk in, at least, you know, when I opened that door, the brewery door was open, and you can hear when that door opens and shuts because there's beer getting brewed back there, and when that door's open, you can hear it. Obviously, I got an ear for background noise, but, uh, yeah. I, uh, um, but yeah, no, and then in the, in the big window, you can see, and you can, see, you can see where you keep all your kegs that wire over to your, you know, to your tap handles, and it all, you know, it comes together to form a kind of mashed together, but very still cohesive image. And I like it a lot. Absolutely. So. Should have seen it a year ago. Yeah. It was just beyond having plain white walls. Oh, yeah. So, I, I personally have tried very hard to get it to look a little more like TGI Fridays with just random flare and stuff on the wall. It was almost uh, very clinical and very, you know sanitary type yeah know. that's not a feeling you want at all no. um, yeah yeah so you're doing a good job yeah and, you know like i said it was again it was that afterthought thing and you know once we started going it was you know it was that hard part of you know i can go ahead and worry about how the tap room looks or i can go ahead and make sure the next batch of beer is going out the door yeah and it was you know the beer was winning and then when dominic came on that's where he helped go ahead and kind of say all right guys just little things, you know, so. Yeah. When did you come on, by the way? Oh, year well, and a, half? a year and a half or so. Two years in October. Okay, yeah. cool. And then, okay, so we, I need to clarify, how old is this tap room? I we are in year five, year so five. we just did our four-year anniversary in April, so. Okay. That's the kind of thing that would, that age, five years old, makes you older than a lot of breweries. Yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff I've read in the industry says that if you can make it to five years, that's usually kind of the sign of stability and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Granted, I look at the numbers and go ahead and go, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. The, the numbers are kind of a, uh, I don't think anyone in the industry knows what the industry is doing. No. And, uh, <laughs> but it's also like any small business where, you know, it's always, you know, ebbs and flows and you're trying to, you know, juggle this, rob Peter to pay Paul, et cetera, like that. So, you know, it, I, I, when I talk to other small business owners, whether they're in you know the brewing business or not, you know, I would say you know we're definitely right in there with everyone else. So yeah, in the thick of it, you mean yeah. like just yeah. yeah, okay. Um, let's see. I'm looking at the wall, and it looks like you've got 
Oh, no, no, wait. I got a quick anecdote. <laughs> quick aside. Uh, you're talking about the sterile place. Uh, and there's one of my favorite breweries in Seattle. is this place called Lucky Envelope. And my friends love the joke. They don't know why I love it so much. And the reason I love it is because they make just the best beer. And I drink a lot of beer and I go to a lot of breweries and I critically drink as much as I can. And I still believe that 90% of the flavor of beer comes from how much fun you're having at the time. I agree with that. And, uh, um, but for whatever reason, Lucky Envelope, despite having a tap room so sterile you could get open heart surgery there, <laughs> it came out as my number one favorite brewery. And I think it's because their beer is so good. Actually, the real reason is because I met the brewer uh, six months before he opened a brewery and he was this judge at a beer competition, just the most excited guy you could ever see. And he was so happy about it. But so that's probably the reason I got that secret history, which I guess kind of comes together. That's why this is important. Um, this podcast, but anyway, he had a sterile, same kind of sterile shit, like had this, you got your sound dampeners, you know, your sound, sound things up there. And in his brewery, they're hanging from the ceiling and they're just white and they're there. And it's like, yeah, okay, go ahead and, Go ahead and get a Sharpie and write on the walls. You know, like, that's just, <laughs> got to do it. Okay. Anyway, um, moving on. Where I was going to mention your mug club. You got sure. it over here on the wall. Looks like, did you guys do a Kickstarter or something to get this going? Or no, actually, the thing you do? We, uh, so mug club, we've been talking about it for probably about a year. And uh, so going back to the Renaissance festivals, or fire eating specifically, where we did a lot of our stuff, we, of course, know a lot of craftspeople from out of the Renaissance Festival. So, including, you know, someone that does hand-thrown pottery. Yeah. So, um, so we came up with the idea, you know, started throwing it together, talked about it with some of the regulars, and they're like, oh, hell yeah, I would buy one of those mugs. So we, you know, basically went ahead, ordered 100 mugs, and said, when they're gone, they're gone, you know. And, you know, basically everyone comes in, they get their nameplate and their spot on the shelf, and they buy their mug. And they come in, they get to go ahead and get a free fill every month with it. They get discounts using their mug. It's bigger than a standard pint. And, you know, it says founding member on it. So, you know, it's it's a nice way for people to go ahead and support the brewery without, yeah. you know, a huge investment and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And the funny part is, is that our number one and our number two mugs, they are actually roommates. Oh, yeah. And one of them actually left work early to go ahead and make sure that she got the number one mug before her roommate did. <laughs> they, they were within a half hour of each other. <laughs> oh, that's dirty. That's dirty. That's it, a good stuff. It was hard. Might as well be number one, though. <laughs> yeah. So it looks like you still have some, op some, some slots open, right? We do I'm still have some slots. Probably about 20. Not, my eyesight's not that great, but you've got three out of five shelves filled up with Mug Club. Yeah. Well, the top one is just display. So we got two out of the five. Ah, okay. Mm, wait, wait. Oh, okay. Uh, and then the, the mugs over there by the bar, mm -hmm. that's all employees and VIP. Ah, so. gotcha. Ooh, who's the VIP? I, I've got some investors. So, okay. you, know, you know, you figure you throw some money at us, you probably deserve a, you know, a mug gotcha. to go ahead and recognize that. So. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Right on. Excuse me. Um, yeah, the guys over Lake Monster, they did, they, they sold fermenter names and it cost $1,000 as part of their Kickstarter, mm. and it came with Beer for Life, which is like, if I thought back at the budget, my, my beer budget, and I had Beer for Life at a brewery, I would never drink anywhere but the place know, where right? my beer was free. But then you, would, $1,000 would have covered my budget, you know, after a couple of, after a year or two, you know. But then you end up with, you know, fermenter names like Fermenter McFermenterface or... Fermenter McFermenterface. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. McBoatface or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the ones I saw, they were like, they must have put in the silly names back in the back because they had like Wilson and Adam, you know, at the front, you know, nice. something, something normal, something normal looking. Craig. Um, right on. I'm looking at your growler collection now up here, trying to see if I recognize anything. So in the tap room here, these are all Minnesota breweries. Mm. And then actually out in the brew house, you can't see it from here, but on the tops of our uh, big cooler is our, the rest of our collection. And then we've slowly been adding to it. Even when you walked in the door, I had another one sitting here. Oh, so, yeah. It, again, it's people want stuff to look at. You're sitting here, you're drinking. You, know, you just want to kind of scope around the wall, look at stuff. My big-ass sign behind you there. Oh, damn. That's yeah. a beautiful sign. That was uh, one of our customers, a regular actually out of Rochester. Rochester's about two hours south of here. He commutes up here more or less every other week and fills a stash of growlers for himself. Mm. And uh, he actually made that for us. It was kind of a funny story, too, because, you know, we we're, were just chatting and, you know, he's like, well, I do, you know, you know, cut iron work and art, you know, and I was like, that's cool. And he's like, I want to make you a sign. And I'm like, that'd be awesome. And then, you know, it, this proceeded to go on for like two years where he's like, yeah, man, I'm going to make you that sign. I'm like, okay. You know, six months later, I'm going to make you that sign. Uh-huh. <laughs> two years later. Yeah, I'm going to make you that sign. Sure, Carl. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then he comes in with... No, he calls me up and says, hey, dude, I got the sign. And I'm like, say what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were kidding. No, it's not like I was kidding. So <laughs> that sign is beautiful. It's huge and it looks heavy. Yeah, hanging from the ceiling by chains, just like you know. Man. Oh, he attached himself to the the ceiling up there with rock climbing harnesses. Oh yeah, and hung up there with chains and pulleys, and yeah, it was it was kind of nerve wracking and watching him install it. Right on. He must commute all the way up here because he drinks gluten free beer. He drinks gluten free beer. Yep. And um, that's fun. Uh, it. It's that's interesting that you can gluten free beer. Your brewery is the only kind of brewery that will, and maybe I'm maybe I'm speculating that will inspire that kind of loyalty, right? I'm loyal to a lot of breweries. There's breweries back in Texas that I love, right? Sure. But I don't pay to have that beer shipped to me. I certainly will never go back and get it. Um, but as a gluten free brewery, you must be the closest one. And he's got to come here, and he loves you guys, and he's gonna love, like this is what he he needs you. There's been a lot of weird stuff like that that I didn't anticipate, like. About two years ago, we did a uh, gluten-free beer dinner with a restaurant called Signature. And uh, we advertised it, and the thing sold out practically overnight, including this eccentric couple from Texas who flew up here specifically just for that dinner. That's insane. And it, it was just one of those things that it was... It was like the first time anyone had ever done something like that where it was like a five-course dinner with five beers. Anywhere in the U.S. And they were all, and it was all gluten-free. And it was all gluten-free. So, you know, and now, you know, Ghostfisher's done that type of thing. We've done it a couple times. I'm sure, you know, some of our comrades in, you know, uh, Pennsylvania and Colorado have probably done similar things. But at the time we did it, it was just new and weird, you know. So, and, and I think that's the thing that we've learned, especially with the celiac community, is they're just looking for those experiences that everyone else is already getting. Mm-hmm. So how can they go ahead and feel normal, if you will? You yeah. Know? So it's kind of cool to be able to provide that. Yeah. What else is? What else could you do? What other experiences are maybe are they maybe missing out on? You know, beer related stuff. I yeah. guess ideally, but you know, anything you can think of. You know, it, a lot of it obviously centers around food. Mm-hmm. We've got this one food truck that comes in called Auntie M's. 
and they do gluten-free funnel cakes, gluten-free corn dogs, gluten-free cheese curds. And you, 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 you know, those of us who can have, you know, regular food kind of take it for granted that when you go ahead and have an available to a celiac person or someone who's gluten intolerant, you know, it's a huge deal for them to basically be able to go ahead and have some sort of deep fried deliciousness like that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, pair it with a beer and stuff like that. So, um, you know, you think about any of the comfort foods, really, you know, you think a good pizza, so, you know, certain types of sandwiches, you know, Dane always jokes that he would kill for a Reuben, you know, yeah. that, you know, in the moment that they come up with the, the magic pill to cure celiac disease, he's popping that pill and we're going and having, you know, pizzas and Reubens and, you know, you name it. So. Now just a quick break from the show to talk about our sponsors. I'd like to thank Willow's Lodge out in Woodville for making this episode possible. Willow's Lodge is a beautiful luxury lodge with spas, hot tubs, beautiful rooms, and when you walk in, they greet you by name. This autumn, they're doing a bike and brew package that includes a trip to Sumerian, where you get a credit on beer, credit on breakfast the following day, and a discount at the spa. I highly recommend you check it out, especially if you want to see the other breweries in the area. They've got some fantastic complimentary bikes for you to use as well. Probably some of the best I've ever ridden. That's Willow's Lodge out in Woodenville. Washington Beer Talk is also brought to you by Craft Beer of the Month. If you want to get a crate of tasty beer sent to your house or sent to someone else as a gift, then check out cyclingcicerone.com slash beer club. That'll send you straight to their website via my affiliate link. We last year produced right around a thousand barrels. Um, barrel for people who don't know, 31 gallons. Uh, we've got a seven barrel brew house. We've got uh, five 15 barrel fermenters and three 30 barrel fermenters. Filling those 30 barrels is definitely a chore. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually have to double brew in a day and then do it on back-to-back days to go ahead and actually fill that 30. So mm-hmm. um, we got a 30 barrel bright tank, 15 barrel bright tank, and uh, then we've got a uh, three head cask semi-automated canner. So that's actually what the guys were doing right before you showed up was mm. they're actually canning beer today. So um, here's a question I've never asked anyone before, and I don't think this is like necessarily a gluten-free, you know, kind of question. Uh, it's a, but you were talking about doing your double back-to-back yeah. brew days to fill up a whole fermenter. Um, how did we wind up with that problem where your brew house is seven barrels and your fermenters are 30? Why not? Why don't we have 30 barrel brew houses? Like you'd think that every brewer I talk to, they're always talking about their double back-to-backs and how long they're having to, you know, the, the guys at Leg Monster, they got a 15 barrel, they got a 90 barrel fermenters. And they said they got to brew, you know, that's six brews. And uh, that's like... It, it always comes down to an issue of money. You know, yeah. you go ahead, and especially on the smaller scale, you know, when you're going ahead and talking about a seven barrel brew house versus a 50 barrel brew house, it, it's not like you go ahead and, you know, it is, oh, what do we do, quick math here? Seven times eight is 56. It's not like a 50-barrel brew house costs, you know, seven and a half times as much. You uh-huh. know? It, it, but it still comes down to when you're doing the capital raise, you got to go ahead and make your compromises somewhere. Mm. And, you know, one of the things I always point out to people, my big aha when we were doing our build-out was I didn't anticipate construction costs mm. accurately. 
yeah, I was thinking, oh, 50,000 bucks, that should cover everything, right? And yeah, no, our construction costs came in considerably more than that, like four to five times that. So, Oof. yeah. So it, it, it was a little bit of a sticker shock when we first sat down with the GC to go ahead and, you know, go through what it would take to go ahead and do some of that. So, and that, yeah, because I would have loved to have gone ahead and started with a 15 barrel brew house like the Lake Monster guys did. But, you know, you go through and you say, you only got, you know, so much money in the kitty. Mm-hmm. Something's got to give. So, in terms of, and now we might be getting too specific here, but uh, in terms of like the ratio of what you spend on fermenters to brew house, you know, brew house, seven barrel fermenter cost, whatever, you've got this much fermenter space. And like, you know, as a home brewer, I guess, the reason I guess I'm curious is as a home brewer, I've got a five gallon kettle and yep. five gallon fermenters. And yep. every time I brew, I fill one fermenter and that's it. I would never even, I would never consider having another way where I had to brew three times to fill a bigger fermenter, right? Like that's just bogus for me. But like, for, like obviously that's the trade-off is there. That fermenters must be considerably cheaper than a bigger brew house. Yes and no. I mean, you got to think about what it costs to install a brew house. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of um, mechanical work that's got to be done. It's got to be properly vented. It's got to have, you know, either gas going for the direct fire or the steam, you know, and the boiler's got to be sized to go ahead and provide the appropriate amount of steam and all that type of stuff. So it's it's not as straightforward as with a fermenter. A fermenter, it's a lot easier to just go ahead and say, all right, I got a 15 barrel and a 30 barrel. It costs about the same to install either one of those. Mm-hmm. You know, nuanceable yeah, differences, yeah. but yeah. And you know, the other thing is, is that I can go ahead and get started with a smaller system and I can add fermentation as things go along. Mm. You know, fermentation is obviously your choke point in yeah. any brewery. You know, going back to your home brewer thing, you know, you're you're not typically, you, know, you might go ahead and say, oh, I'm almost out of this style and it's time to go ahead and make something else. Whereas we're sitting there and anticipating, all right, I'm almost out of this. I need to keep doing this. And I have to constantly be trying to keep the kettle moving, keep the fermenters full. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera, like that. So yeah, and you know, if you find a style that's actually selling, you know, you've got your you know India Pale Ale or whatever you know the current the current buzz is, then you go ahead and say it takes just as long to go ahead and ferment ninety barrels of something as it does to ferment ten barrels of something. So why wouldn't I go ahead and make ninety barrels if I can? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's harder to go ahead and say. I'm going to go ahead and throw out a test of this particular style. But if all I've got is a 50 barrel brew house, you know. You kind of have to brew 50 barrels worth of it, right? Right. Maybe if I'm Lagunitas, I can go ahead and, you know, throw out 50 barrels worth of stuff to test. Yeah. But for, you know, the rest of us, you know. You don't have a pilot brewery, you know. Right. (laughs) 50 barrels for me is, you know, 5% of my production for the year, you know. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, do you pilot your beers? Do you have like a five gallon batch system back there that you mess around with? Yeah, we've actually got a full barrel system that we use back there. Okay. So we'll usually go ahead and the smallest we usually do is we'll do a half barrel. Mm-hmm. So just a keg's worth basically. Yeah. And uh, usually we'll go ahead and, you know, we'll do some of the special events. Dominic's really good at going ahead and coming up with weird and obscure special events for us to go ahead and try and, you know, celebrate. So yeah. People just want an excuse to drink. Yeah. I mean, you, we did a bunch of them last year. What would you say? Yeah, let's talk about popular? some of those. By the way, can I throw in before you say anything? Dom and Tom. How's that nickname not been around? It happens. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dominic, 
You, uh, yeah, so we're talking about events. We just, you know, I joke that we're just a bunch of dorks selling beer here. So if we, we oh, yeah. try to come up with weird things, I mean, everybody is doing, you know, whatever, this and that. We celebrate, like, the four, July 3rd, or not July 3rd, uh, <laughs> Friday the 13th, you know, like this Friday. Yeah, why not? So the first Friday the 13th we did was in the dead of winter. We threw on our lime shandy, you know, which is our summer beer. Said, screw it, you don't need it just in the summer. Let's have it in the winter. We had tacos, you know. Who says you need tacos on Tuesday? Screw it, we're going to do it on this Friday, you know, just... Stupid stuff like that. Um, we, I, I think the one that was most successful last year, and to a certain extent this year, was "Can't Wait for St. Patty's Day." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We don't. We we can't compete, especially in St. Paul. This is a very Irish, you know, Irish St. Patrick's Day driven town. Mm-hmm. So we don't try to compete. But a month ahead of schedule in February, when there's nothing going on, we say screw it to Valentine's Day, and that weekend instead we do it. I can't wait for St. Patrick's Day. Green beer, we decorate the entire place, you know, wore kilts for it and just get into it. Um, it was nuts. It was. Instead of St. Patrick's Day, the day after St. Patrick's Day is yeah. actually the National Awkward Moments Day. <laughs> so we celebrate, you know, the, the walk of shame, you know, the, the, the stride of pride. So if you show up, you know, let's say... The stride of pride. Yeah. <laughs> it depends on what side you fall on, you know. Yeah. So it's like, come in and tell us about, you know, wearing your St. Patrick's gear from yesterday and tell us about that crazy awkward moment that happened to you and we'll give you a free beer type of thing. <laughs> you know, so... The other one that was off the rails was National Donut Day. Yeah. Yeah. You would not believe it. We were actually cruising out of here, searching around grocery stores, trying to find more donuts because we we opened it too that day, which was new for us. And just person after optic donuts, can I get a dozen? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's six, 15 and a half out of 16 dozen donuts in an afternoon. You know, but like Tom said before, we're a vice business and for people that... You know, can't have a donut to see that there's donuts here. They gaga over it. Yeah. But that was the perfect storm. It was. There, so. There's two, the two main newspapers out of the Twin Cities. One did this whole brewery crawl, you know, a south and a north or east, west, whatever it happened to be. And it said, oh, if you go to Burning Brothers, they're going to have donuts for National Donut Day. Well, then, like, the very next day, the other newspaper did the same thing, but it was a bakery crawl for donuts. And they said, if you're a gluten-free option, go to Burning Brothers. I'm like, oh, now we're screwed. <laughs> yep. So. Oh, wow. That's so, fun. Yeah. Well, so try to do a little quirky, weird Things, things. you wouldn't expect to work. Yeah. Work. Yeah. yeah. So. But I, I think you're right. The vice business, yeah. Because that's ultimately what beer is. It's a vice. Yeah. We're vice peddlers. You yeah. Know, to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, so it's all about, you know, social and good times. Yeah. You know, so. I like to say, I don't peer pressure, but if I can enable you, I will. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm an enabler. <laughs> when you said uh, a vice business, business I, I went straight to like vice beer, you know, like just, yeah. you know. So I was like, "What? What kind of wheat beer are you going to serve it at the?" I had it. I had a speaking. It's got gluten in it. But what? I had a pretty amazeball Weiss beer this weekend. Um, it was a hopped up Hefeweizen that you wouldn't ever think that would work. And I had one in a variety pack. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Was it an extra hopped Imperial Pilsner? 
Smoked with black pepper. Smoked, yeah. yes. Uh, Imperial Pilsner. Colored with Smoked. squid ink. <laughs> so no. we always joke, you know, you can't, you know, you don't want to screw up your Pilsner or lager. It's supposed to be light, easy drinking, whatever, but we're going to do a double Imperial pumpkin Pilsner, you know. <laughs> I am a big advocate for, you know, step one to enjoying a pumpkin beer. Throw it in the trash. Yeah. <laughs> I do not like pumpkin beers. Oh so. man, yeah, and they're uh, they're funny and like they're not good, but I drink them every time anyway. As soon as they come out, it's that stupid. I was just talking with Leg Monster about the scarcity model and how you have beers that are not always available, and it makes everyone want them. They're talking about the blood orange seasonal that they yeah. won't brew all the time because they can't. Well, the funny thing about that is, is that seasonality in beers is kind of a misnomer because it's yeah. like. Uh, everything's available year round if you really want it to be. Uh, yeah, what's wrong with limes in yeah, the winter? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, you know, we, we, that being said, we retire our lime, you know, right around October. Yeah. We replace it with cranberry shandy, so. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It, trends are trends. You got to buy into them one way or another. So. Yep. Yeah. That gives people something to look forward to, too. So. That's true. So even though I don't like pumpkin beer, I'm still, I'm still going to get one as soon as they start coming out. Well, let's see. Well, it's been the pumpkin beer has been popular now for a few years, which means they should be coming out again. The pumpkin beer season should be starting any day now. That joke makes more sense when you know that this was recorded back in July. Any day? Rather than waiting till October. Well, that's funny you say that because from a, a distribution aspect, like we are getting ready for Oktoberfest. Like... Oktoberfest starts at the end of this month, whether people want to realize it or not. Yeah. By the time Oktoberfest rolls around and you want to drink that beer, it's already gone. Oktoberfest yeah. is done and over. You know, so the the seasonalities and the timeline and stuff is all all screwy, if you ask me. So part of the reason Dominic is here is Dominic actually has a pretty unique perspective. He was in the distribution side for almost sixteen years. Oh, okay. So. That was, you know, when we were talking about hiring him, that was hugely beneficial. That was definitely a, a, a secret knowledge kind of thing you had. Yeah, actually, uh, 18 years here soon. Yeah. I'm getting old. You want to talk about that at all? I, so a lot of breweries I've been talking to these days, they, uh, um, do, like especially here, well, you know what, especially everywhere, but here the distribution guys are like half villain, you know, like half, half tastemaker. They... They're either in Budweiser's pocket or they're screwing you over in some other way. Uh, that's they're all evil. <laughs> yeah. What? So, as a distribution guy, yeah, give us some insights. Tell us some of that. So, what? What goes on over there? You know, the, here too. Same, the same as anything else. You know, I stumbled into this aspect of it purely on accident, chance. Mm-hmm. You know, I was working for GameStop at the time. Nineteen years old, not even old enough to drink run into a friend of mine. She's like, hey, I just got a job managing this liquor store. You should come work for me. The rest is history. And when it comes to the distribution side, the last company I was at, I was with nine years and a week before we were purchased by a competitor. And really, you you toe the line to what your distributing company tells you. You know, for me personally, I always wanted the newest and the latest and the greatest. And even if it's a flash in the pan, you know, why isn't it our flash in the pan type of mentality? And I went out and sold what I enjoyed and what was good, but I also sold everything else. You know, the company that I worked for, we weren't, we were like Budweiser so much as the parent company to Budweiser 
owned some of our brands, you know, but we were, we had a little bit of Miller Coors products in there. We had some Diageo and we had some Constellation brands and, you know, at least my company that I worked for, we were kind of unique. We we're an employee owned business. We were the redheaded stepchild. I always joke, we weren't your Miller, your Coors or your Bud. We were your Paps guys, you know, but we were also your Guinness and your Stella and we didn't have a personal favorite or didn't have the ability to bury a product. Whereas like if you were an, a Budweiser house all the way and you had your Budweiser brands, whether it be their craft brands or their standard brands, you know, that was the hand that fed you and that's what you kept going with. So, you know, the distributors, yeah, they can, I don't want to say make or break your product, but they definitely can play a hand in it. You piss them off, they'll bury your stuff. You know, if you feel that you are becoming too big of competition for their main brands, you know, the parent companies, yeah, they'll put your stuff to the side, but you also got to put trust in them and hope that they're going to go out and do right by you too, you know. But yep. with anything, half the people are going to really believe in your stuff and push it, and the other half aren't. You know, there's really no way to win in that whole situation, unfortunately. Yeah. You know? And I suspect things will continue to change a lot in the next few years because, like, there's just no reason for it all to stay the way that it is with the way that, you know, distributors shouldn't have that kind of role. They don't, they don't get that. They shouldn't have that kind of ability, and regulations change and things like that are going on. And I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think things will change a little bit. You know, when it comes to the distribution side, nothing's changed as long as I've been in the business. Mm. You know, everything changes from this aspect of it. Um, when it comes to the distribution game, there's a lot of steadfast rules and laws that have been on the books for forever, and there's no end in sight. Mm -hmm. um, the regulations that I've seen changing is, like Tom mentioned earlier, you know, like the Surly Bill, and being able to sell the growlers and stuff like that on your tap room and have the bars. Um, that's where I see more of it changing. The, the way that the industry is changing as a whole is, is more focused towards the supplier and the retailer. Distribution guys always has been, always will be the middleman, you know. Yeah. But being able to open on Sundays, which we just hit the year anniversary of, you know, we've never had liquor stores open on Sundays. You still can't buy regular booze in the grocery stores yet. That'll be the stuff you see changing. Mm -hmm. a lot sooner than you see any aspect of the distribution models <laughs> let's do a uh, let's do the lightning round so some easy questions some hard questions and a surprising question at the end um, first question what oh, first question how old are you 44 36 punk ah. <laughs> how old are you I'm 27 damn <laughs> Get off my lawn. I'm the punk. Yeah, I, uh, yeah I'm, the, I'm the punk in this room. All right. Um, do you have any kids? Yes. Two. Two. How old are they? What are they my doing? daughter turns 21 at the end of this month. Wow. And has already agreed to let me buy her her first beer. Oh. I'm actually really excited about that. So. That's really sweet. Yeah. I'm, that's exciting. We're going to do it in the afternoon so that she can then go do what we know all 21-year-olds are going to do in the evening. So, Which is try to do 21 shots and mark, hopefully mark them on her eye. Or Something. <laughs> I don't know. So, And then my son is uh, 16, turned 17 in a month. So, Right on. I got three myself. My oldest just turned 14 last week. Um, my youngest turns four at the end of this month. And then we got the middle, he turns nine in October. Dane has three kids too, for what Dane. it's worth. <laughs> that is true. What's your favorite beer here? Favorite beer here? Damn. I thought we went through this. That's like you know, going ahead and asking who's your favorite child. 
And uh, yeah, what, the what, what I said at the time was, uh, at, at the brewery, yeah. But what I said at the time was, everyone has a favorite child. You just won't admit who. That it is. is true. I will tell you that I've been enjoying our Most Coast, um, probably because it's newer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had our Raj IPA on for probably almost three years, and you know, having a different IPA to go ahead and go with, I I've been digging it more lately. Yeah. So, you know, I I would have to say the Most Coast too. When I first started, I was drinking um, Scorched, which is our version of a black and tan, which has the Raj and the coffee blended together. Oh, okay. um, And that's what I was drinking until we did the Most Coast, but I I bugged Dane for a good year to make a me a, a beer like this, so I was happy when I finally made it on there. Now, that being said, I will add a caveat that is we've got black pepper porter that's going on in two weeks. And I'm a big fan of stouts and porters. So the black pepper port is pretty. And we're doing it on nitro to go ahead and start with as well. So Ooh, man. I, I'm looking forward to that. My so. girlfriend will regret missing that. Uh, <laughs> she loves that kind of stuff. Nice. Um, next question: What is your favorite beer of all time? Perhaps the beer that turned you into the man you are today. Wow. Uh, for me, I would probably have to say, and this is not a surprise for people who know me, it was uh, Triple Carmelite. It's a old, you know, Belgian, you know, Abbey recipe mm-hmm. that has been the same for like almost 200 years. Wow. And uh, there's this this specialty bar not here anymore in the Twin Cities called the Glockenspiel mm-hmm. that w- was the first place that I got introduced to it. And it is just hands down just the most tasty beer I have ever had. So Is that a Trappist beer I can't remember at the moment? Yeah. Okay. What about you? I honestly don't know if I have an answer for that. That's a tough question. You know, I'm the, uh, the type of cat that's got, you know, eight, nine different beers lined up in my fridge. And <laughs> I will say I, I was, I grew up with an uncle that let me try a lot of different beers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first beer I ever enjoyed was the Coors Original. Okay, course having, course you know, banquet beer. But I was like for 16 in Colorado. So that's a good question. You should add this to your repertoire. First beer I ever enjoyed, Corona, but it had to have the lime. Oh, see, so, you got to drink it like the brothers drank. You probably can't see the quotes. <laughs> I a splash of grenadine and it tastes like fruit punch. There you go. <laughs> So. All right. Well, guys, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Uh, what do you say we grab a beer? Sounds like a plan. All right. Thank you so much, Tom and Dom. I'll see you next time when I'm back in Minnesota. Thanks for listening to Washington Beer Talk. If you like what you heard, then you can find other episodes of the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play. Don't forget to like, leave a review, and share with your friends. Uh-oh. Sad trombone sound. Uh-oh. <laughs> womp, womp. I had gluten-free, no. No. No, it's, they saw that the tap room's closed. Yeah. So, denied.